Kumbaya, bitches. We're back. Um, this is the Comics Course, which is a offering of Miskatonic University's Remote Education Department's uh, Literature 209, which is Graphical Literature in Society and History, better known as the Comics Course. I'm here with my ever-suffering T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. And I am Professor Hamby. As always, you can go to our website, comicscourse.org. Uh, the podcast is distributed through Captivate.fm, and you can directly download episodes at comicscourse.captivate.fm. I probably should, like, make a subdomain for that, like podcast.comicscourse.org or something and redirect it. I'll look into how to do that. I am Prof Hamby on Twitter, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y, and we are here yet again to share some more Black Panther. Now, I have pulled up here on the computer screen the digital version of the complete collection of Reginald Hudlin's Black Panther Volume 3, which is a great cover art piece of Storm and T'Challa. And what were you saying before we started? Well, we actually had pretty much started recording, but it was on our first attempt to record when my mic fell off the table. Um, and we've now, we're, we're not ignoring that it happened, we've retconned it. That's the important distinction in comics. We retconned that shit. So anyway, what were, you, what were you saying about the cover, Rowan? I said I've noticed the cover art seems to be a lot better than the actual art inside. Right. And, you know, one of the fascinating things about cover art is that it's always been meant to grab people. Predating comics, going back to magazines, even newspapers, uh, when they used to put, you know, illustrations on the front page when there was more competition in the newspaper market, especially in, like, if you go back to the early 20th century, there were cities that had three, four, five newspapers, and so they were highly competitive. Well, comics certainly became that at the newsstand, like the pulp magazine predecessors were, and they wanted to attract people. But here's one of the interesting things about that. They attracted people by virtue of being colorful or powerful or word balloons. Uh, th there are some famous stories, and I don't know how true they are, but Stan Lee used to claim that he basically had DC constantly copying how he put together covers. And so he'd put together all of his covers with, say, red backgrounds for a few months, wait for DC to start doing that, and then change it, you know, so that the covers had tons of text on them. And then when DC started doing that, he changed it to no text and just mess with them. Because DC never, in that time period, seemed to grok that the story is what was actually selling the books, return buyers, not impulse purchases of the covers. And indeed, there was little reason to promote covers in terms of quality versus those other eye-catching things because people could pick them up and flip through them. And they could see that the interior art wasn't as good. Interestingly now, though, of course, we live in an age where if you're buying physical comics from the direct market, which is how the majority of comics are sold now, you don't get to look inside. You go to a comic book store and they put a backing board and plastic wrap around it, and you're not allowed to open it. So you're buying purely based on the cover now. <laughs> Which I think is kind of messed up. Yeah. And art is an important part of storytelling. Now, I don't talk about art extensively on the podcast uh, of my lectures, in part because I'm not qualified to. I'm not an artist myself. I don't know a lot of the language I would be glad to have somebody else present who could talk about art more, but this is a literature lecture series, and so we talk about the writing primarily. 
but art certainly plays an important factor in the art. Uh, one, one of the classics I always think of is Stefan Sajic's run on Aquaman. I was really enjoying reading Aquaman, and Stefan Sajic left the title. He was only doing art. He wasn't writing, and it felt like the quality of the writing plummeted, and of course, it, it hadn't. It was the same writer. He was doing the same good job, but Stefan Sajic's pencil work enhanced the writing in a way that those who replaced him did not. And so with the artist leaving, the quality of the story being told suffered. I think that comes from the fact that he sold himself to the devil to get that good of pencil work. He, he is a natural. I mean, he and Robert Johnson have places assured in hell together. It, it is just mind-blowing how good he is. And he's a damn good writer, too, which is just insulting. Mm -hmm. You know, being able to write and draw your own stuff, it just kind of offends me on some level, to be yeah. honest. Um, to do both. Oh, do you, do you want to know what's worse? His wife is a really good artist and writer too. God damn it. I mean, I, I will say I don't think she is as quite as good an artist as he is, but she's still really good. I really like her stuff. Her, uh, she does stuff on webtoons and collects and sells it uh, through one of the image publishers as well, just like he does. Mm. Yeah, uh, I do recommend her comedy series Bloodstains. It is about this young woman, early-ish 20s. She cannot hold down a job. She gets fired from everything. And she, her family needs the money. So she sees this job posted, basically says, you don't need previous experience, but you have to be willing to relocate to the middle of nowhere. And she calls up the number, and this guy answers half asleep and is like, Get here by, you know, uh, midnight or you're not hired. Click. And she's like, ah! So, I mean, she abandons everything, heads into the middle of nowhere, doesn't have a charger for her phone, it dies. Her family has no idea where she is. And this guy is creepy as fuck. This, this, she, she just set up her own murder. Right. Which is what she is constantly thinking for about the whole first volume. Now, of course, it turns out that he's not actually a creepy psychopath. He is creepy, but unintentionally. For example, he scares the living shit out of her in the hallway. But it is weird while he does it, and she finds out later he sleepwalks. He's unaware that he was walking behind her and scared her. Um, he's completely unkempt. He falls asleep in the middle of the day. He has these stains on his jacket, the blood stains that the title comes from, that she's convinced are from some evil experiment he does it actually turns out to be dried ketchup he's obsessed with ketchup and just floods everything he eats with ketchup uh and so on and so forth um it, 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 and it's a story where they you know this odd couple become friends the neurotic and irascible genius the headstrong flighty young girl but it doesn't dip into romance. It doesn't get into that tired trope. Mm -hmm. um, but they do become friends. Aww. So, I, anyway, we are tangenting off Black Panther, Reginald Hudlin. But it's easy to do, honestly, because volume three of The Complete Black Panther by Reginald Hudlin is kind of a snooze fest, in my opinion. Mm. Now, I'm not saying they're bad. Okay, before I get all the hate mail... I'm not saying that it sucked. I'm not saying it sucked donkey balls. I'm not saying elephant turds fell on Reginald Hudlin while he was writing it. 
I'm not saying anything negative at all, so please stop putting those words in my mouth. Um, no, I'm just saying it's not interesting. Now, it's perfectly entertaining. You can read it, you can enjoy it, but then it's largely disposable. It doesn't have that sort of bigger picture idea behind it that makes you want to come back to it over and over again. And in some ways, it's very appropriate. I mean, Reginald Hudlin is the guy who did movies like House Party, which is a very entertaining vehicle for two now trivia question rappers called Kid and Play. It was a big movie at the time. And nobody's going back to rewatch it at this point, I don't think, except like one bro in East L.A. or something. I don't know. So it's good. It's entertaining. Right. Not literature. And it doesn't add to the mythology of the Black Panther. Still, we're going to go through it, and we're going to point out a few interesting things that did come from it. And we're going to jump right into the storyline back to Africa. Is it just me, but the more and more we go into these comics, the more and more the artists make him look like Batman? It does feel that way a lot of times, doesn't it? And he did sort of at this point become the Marvel Universe Batman because of, and here's an interesting thing for you, of course. There has never really been a Marvel Batman. The, the, the Marvel and DC universes have had parallels, but they've never been exact. And one of them is Marvel has not really had a Batman until I would argue that Black Panther kind of became their Batman. And I think he does in a lot of ways fill that role. Um, this art is not credited right here, and I don't recognize the stylistic signature, but internal to opening it up, you have to admit that's amazing. Yeah, that's gorgeous. I mean, it looks almost Franz Frazetta-esque, but, I mean, he would have passed away before this was done, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so, as we open up, we see this U.S. warship that's clearly not on a lake, and clearly Wakanda is now a coastal nation, presumably in North Africa, and Shuri's been talked into getting on the ship and trying to mess with it. And, of course, she gets captured because she's not really prepared for this. Now, if this had just been some random hobo ship or, you know, second world government ship, she probably would have been fine. But it was the U.S. military carrying a high-value agent that is there to take out the Black Panther. Now, this is called Back to Africa because, obviously, T'Challa's been in the U.S., He's been subbing in with the Fantastic Four. He's been handling stuff. But now he's like, I'm heading back. I'm going to Africa. I'm going back to Wakanda. And for some reason, he's flying along the sea when he does this instead of doing a suborbital hop, which has been the standard for the Black Panther going to Wakanda up to now and would be way, way faster. And he's constantly talking about how speed is of the utmost importance. So that makes no sense to me. But I'm... Where Wakanda is now. Uh, Changes. No, if you're doing... <laughs> never mind. I'm just bypassing that. <laughs> so we get Wakabi here. Wakabi... We've now kind of established in Reginald Hudlin's world, we haven't seen Wakabi's fake arm for a long time, but he's taken on this weird golden thing over his face that feels very Jack Kirby-esque to me. I feel like that's a homage to Jack Kirby there. So... We switch over to Nyganda, where kids are what? scavenging because they're poor. And remember those big mutant animals when the X-Men crossover happened? Well, it turns out a few are still around. 
and one decides to eat some kids. Except Eric Killmonger shows up and shoots it. Because Eric Killmonger is back, and he's intending to take over Niganda and use it to stage war against Wakanda. Can we really say he's back? He's always there. He never leaves, that's true. And of course, Killmonger is the one that captured Shuri, who's now in a dungeon. Now, the whole time she's in this dungeon, this guy, I think her cousin, is trying to mack on her. And she's basically like, we're in a dungeon. This is not the time for romance. Stop it. Stop it. As the storyline goes on, uh, Killmonger takes over the country. There's terse discussions with the U.S. The U.S. decides to send Monica Rambeau to uh, take out Killmonger. And he captures her because he has a bunch of super advanced uh, force shield technology now, apparently. So this, so T'Challa's like, okay, I'm going to have to deal with this myself. Now, as all this is happening, Storm is MIA because there's thing, something going on that in the X-Men was the Messiah Complex storyline. But we're not going to get into that right now. Instead, we're just going to continue to follow the story, including the sadistic action of Killmonger, to let basically six guys into her cell, Nigandan criminals, to rape and murder her. Oh, God. They don't use the word rape here, but it's really clear. And it's a pretty shocking, disturbing scene that I, I really took me by surprise reading it when I first read it many moons ago. And, you know, looking through it for the lecture series, I read it and reread it like, is there another implication I can come? I mean, the best implication I could potentially come to is that they're just going to physically beat her up while she's chained to the wall. But... Does that look like a scene drawn for the kind of, you know, subhuman scum that would just beat her up and leave her alone afterwards? No. 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 It, it's creepy as hell. Yeah. Fortunately, she beats the living shit out of them, even while trained, chained to the wall, and snaps one of their necks with her chains. Apparently, she's gotten over her first kill of the radioactive man with the ebon blade. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And this, and this arc really is the rise of Shuri in a lot of ways. And a well-done rise of Shuri. I, I actually do like the Shuri presented here. Uh, much more so than I do the movie version, to be honest. Yeah, uh, I, I have my own personal dislikes of that. Well, and, and the actress doesn't help. Yeah, that doesn't help either. But there was nothing they built up in the first movie to convey that she would one day be ready to take over the Black Panther. Well, I mean, but he had told them, the actor, uh, that he wasn't oh. going to do more movies. He didn't tell them about his cancer, but it was known from the beginning that he wasn't going to do a second movie. And before they started production on the first Black Panther, they already had prepared the storyline for Shuri becoming Black Panther. Oh, I always assumed there was going to be a buildup for the movies before she took over. No. Oh. Now, maybe they planned to have him back at least in cameo scenes. But, obviously, that's not going to happen. So, while these four shields are preventing Wakandan military from acting, uh, basically, T'Challa uses a mole machine to burrow underground and come up under the four shields. Because, of course, he would. Right. And he basically tells Killmonger, 
you know, stop this crap, let my people go, or we're having it. So they go into melee combat. Killmonger gets a lot of good hits in. It's not going great. and But T'Challa manages to get plenty of good smacks in himself. I have to admit, this one scene where we just see their silhouettes and this chunking sound and this little spray, it, I kind of cringed at it. I mean, for something that's not graphic, it made me kind of feel that knee to the jaw. <laughs> Plus, I did also like the fact that T'Challa just gave him a full-on hardest punch you can straight to the family jewels. To which Killmonger's response is, Mother! <laughs> the crowd is watching, and one kind of is shrinking back like, uh, who saw that one coming? Somebody asked, is that fair? Somebody else says, who cares? Look at that guy. I would have done the same thing if I could punch that hard. <laughs> Look, they're fighting to the death. All punches are fair. Yep. Meanwhile, Zuri is going to rescue people and they find mutant apes. Remember the red ghost apes? Mm -hmm. They're all chained up to machines and doing weird stuff. Yep, and they've got the brain exposed and are manipulating things. Meanwhile, we find Everett K. Roths is back at the State Department watching satellite footage of the fight between Killmonger and T'Challa and that he helped orchestrate this entire plot where, and basically, they're looking to destabilize Wakanda and they're looking for a scenario where whether Killmonger succeeds or fails, either way, the U.S. has to get invited in to help in the cleanup. No, it's not. It, it is a complete rejection of the Ross, and definitely a complete retcon. Um, this is not the Everett K. Ross we knew from the Christopher Priest. It is a very dark view of American political uh, goals and working with other countries. Now, I'm not saying it's inaccurate. Mm -hmm. I actually think there's probably a lot very accurate about this. But I wish they chose a different Right. I would have preferred a new character. It doesn't feel right to me. And it feels, honestly, to me, a little disrespectful of Christopher Priest's contribution. Mm -hmm. um, so we find the monkey who's been building the Force Shields and is, working with Killmonger. Does he have an eye patch on? He does. He has a monkey with an eye patch. Remember, he was one of the Red Ghost Monkeys. Pirate Monkey. Pirate Monkey. Uh, Monica Rambeau, a.k.a. Photon, Captain Marvel, whatever she's calling herself these days, manages to break herself out of the sphere, and they start shutting down the force shields. Meanwhile, Brother Voodoo has finally found the nephew or cousin or whatever of T'Challa who became infected by the cannibal and is looking to, you know, manipulate the Wakandan government for the inside to his own advantage. And Brother Voodoo just decides to poison him and kill him. Which is a little weird, right? Yeah. Except that as things proceed, we find out that the cannibal confronts Brother Voodoo and finds out that he's not really Brother Voodoo. He's a scroll, an alien shape changer. Of course he's a scroll. And they both end up dying. Now this leads up to a huge Marvel cross-universe event called Secret Invasion that will take up several issues. And as that happens, basically, we start off the next issue with Secret Invasion, 
these aliens are showing up and they're flying into Wakanda. And well, I'll just read you some of the dialogue. So we get the internal thoughts of the commander. How many worlds does this make now? How many planets have I helped bring under the boot heel of the Empire? I lost count a long, long time ago. By the way, there should be a comma there, motherfuckers. Uh, so many battles over the years, it's hard to even keep them all straight. Thank the stars that one way or another, this battle is certain to be the last. Commander to cover? See, I imagine the scrolls naturally have little high-pitchy voices. Sir, we're entering Wakandan airspace. Signs of opposition. See, this is the difference between scroll commanders and scroll ensigns. Ensigns talk like this, like fucking fairies. Um, and, and by that, I mean little winged fairies from D&D, not people. I wouldn't use that slur. Uh, while commanders talk all, you know, macho and shit. Mm-hmm. Signs of opposition. None at all, sir. The Wakandans are a technologically proficient people, sir. At least by Earth standards. Surely by now they've detected our presence. Yes, I imagine they have, little pixie bitch. <laughs> Months ago, our sleeper agents began infiltrating every aspect of Wakanda's power structure. By now, they will have made their move, crippling defenses nationwide and leaving the vibranium ripe for our taking. So, I, I'm not going to continue that. Uh, but So basically, they fly forward, and they find a bunch of scroll heads on pikes outside the Wakandan central city. That's not a threat. I don't know what is. So, as things proceed, basically things do get really bad. They cut off Wakanda's power. Wakandans shut down their ships. It goes back and forth. And we end up at a huge melee where basically the scrolls are reduced to melee weapons and the panther cult comes out in force. And it's just a big medieval brawl with arrows and spears and swords and shields. And it just goes down. And Storm is finally back from the Messiah Complex storyline. Why is she blonde in this? She's always blonde. I mean, white-haired blonde, but blonde. And if they drew her hair completely white right here, it would interfere with the lightning effect. Because there's lightning behind her. It would all blur together too much. So as the storyline goes on, we now see that they have some super scrolls that have powers from Bullseye and Power Fist and Iron... uh, Wolverine and all kinds of characters and so that provides for some fun fight scenes and they have to get beaten down and we have a lot of gore that happens but eventually what appears to happen is that T'Challa and Storm do get taken out wait wait back mm-hmm. do the Wakandan people wear panther armor as their armor usually not usually that's only the Black Panther However, this appears to be a special situation of some kind, and they haven't really explained it well. That's so cool. Yeah. See, and now we have a couple more Super Scrolls. One is like a mashup between Hulk, Juggernaut, and the Thing. One is a mix-up between Beta Ray Bill, Loki, and Thor. Um, Again, more cool fight scenes. They eventually get taken out, but Storm gets kidnapped by a scroll, it appears, And T'Challa is laid out by one of his trusted allies who turns out to be a scroll in disguise. So now we spend a good chunk of the next issue with them, Storm and T'Challa, being tortured. 
and they refuse to look at each other. They refuse to answer questions. They just repeat the same things over and over. Until, and I thought I think the art on the scrolls here is especially good. They look like creepy goblin people in a lot of ways, I don't they? I love it. So at one point, the scroll torturer contacts the commander and says, They're repeating themselves. Must be the delirium setting in. I'd say another adrenaline shot is called for. Huh, that's odd. What is it? Because he's a lower rank. Feels like, like something's lodged in the throat here. Hand me the forceps, will you? And it turns out that Storm and uh, T'Challa have vocal modulators controlling their speech. And another device buried further down controlling their shape. It's almost like it's not him. It turns out it's scrolls. Meanwhile, T'Challa and Storm are literally standing next to the commander using image uh, uh, disguisers. (laughs) And we find out that the way that they knew who were scrolls and they were prepared for it was that they were able to shield their minds and their bodies against all technology, but all the people of Wakanda are united on a soul level through the Panther God. And they're all connected to the Panther God's pavilion and hunting grounds. And so he could sense the spies because they didn't have Wakandan souls. That's a handy tool to have. It is, isn't it? So in the end, although it was difficult, they managed to completely destroy all the scroll invaders. And again, Wakanda remains unconquered, even by a galactic empire. Mm. Now we move on to Black Panther, the deadliest of the species, featuring an incredible J. Scott Campbell art piece of Shuri in a Black Panther outfit. Mm. And if there's one thing J. Scott Campbell never was afraid to do was draw curves on a woman. Just saying. So as the storyline starts, basically, uh, Storm is going through the city with her mother-in-law, and T'Challa is returning from a diplomatic mission, and the plane crashes. He is burnt deeply, and we find out that he went to have communication with Namor, and they were discussing what's going on in the rest of the world and the need for allies to get together. T'Challa says, I refuse to join your Illuminati. I refuse to do other things. Uh, I'm disturbed by this rise of Norman Osborn as well. This connected to a big event happening in the Marvel Universe at the time. Because Marvel had hit the point where what they were doing was a giant, major, world-shattering event every six months. and Or, or four months. And it would just re- lead from one to the other constantly. To try to push book sales as high as possible. Got to buy them all. Got to collect them all. Which I'm not sure they realize when you do it that much, it stops becoming interesting. Which which have happened. And it was happening around this time. People were getting burnt out fast. But uh, the Dark Reign storyline followed up immediately after Secret Invasion. And T'Challa basically said, I've refused to be part of your Illuminati and other groups before. I'm not going to become part of this one. And as he leaves the conference, he's ambushed by Doom, who does his damnedest to kill T'Challa. Sorry, who's Doom? Victor Von Doom, Dr. Doom. Okay. Do we need a brief bio on Dr. Doom here? Please. 
Victor Von Doom. Uh, childhood, well, not childhood. He grew up with a very messed up family. His mother apparently had some experience with magic. He grew up to be a scientist and was college friends with Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four. An accident happened that he blamed Reed Richards for that horribly scarred his face. He attempted to use black magic to get his mother out of hell, and he has made a career melding super science with black magic. And one of the major villains of the Fantastic Four. And then they did a Fantastic Four movie where he was a blogger. Because, yeah, yeah. And and people wonder why this movie was bad. Um, So T'Challa is now at death's door. He's in a coma. He's having lots of problems. They want to figure out how to save his life. But at the same time, they need a new Black Panther. And by the way, both of T'Challa's Dora Milaje uh, die during this assault. Yep. Nope. It is not good. And he is messed up. He's in a back to tank like Luke Skywalker. Um, But he doesn't lose a hand. But he is messed up. And this drives a number of choices they make. Including the choice to visit a creepy ass weird shaman on the edge of the jungle. Who apparently is not well liked by a lot of civilized Wakanda. Who says a lot of creepy circumspect stuff without ever answering anything directly, because apparently to be a shaman, you have to be an annoying motherfucker. (laughs) And people wonder why people don't like shamans. Right. Meanwhile, Shuri is undergoing the rites to become the Black Panther. And a whole other group of shamans, on the other side of Wakanda, decide to summon Morlun, this thing that eats totem spirits, like the Panther God. So this seems bad, right? So as the storyline progresses, Morlun is just doing a rampage across the countryside, and Storm agrees to be put into a ritual to try to connect with T'Challa and bring his soul back from the edge of death. And that's what they face, this weird, messed up angel of death covered in skulls. That looks awesome! I know, it does, doesn't it? And while that's happening, Shuri has to face the Panther God. And I don't know why she has some weird white puff behind her here. Yeah. Because it's not hair. It's not connected to her head. I don't know what the intent of it in the art is. Yeah, I don't either. That's confusing. It's it's Campbell again, though, who did all these covers. And I'm sure he had some purpose behind it. But you can see... For a second, I thought maybe he was trying... To imply it was Storm, but and it was Storm's hair, but you can see it's not connected to her head. Yeah, it's like connected floating to on a cape. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. I wonder if somebody went in and did some editing on the art afterwards. Yeah. Anyway, while all this is happening, uh, Manape attempts to face Morlun, who just beats him like a little bitch. T'Challa almost goes into the light when an image of T'Chaka is given to him. Storm saves him. Because remember, way to save a superhero 101, show them their dead dad. Right. And I love this page. I mean, Storm is a badass. Yeah. She shows up just clothed in golden lightning. Uh, another great cover here of Campbell with Storm and T'Challa. I love Campbell's pinup stuff. It's just amazing. 
And then the big confrontation happens. Morlun finally is reaching the Wakandan capital. And the mystic, the annoying mystic, the mystic that you just are like, I'm pretty sure this guy's a bad guy and he's a creep. Ends up working with Shuri. Shuri has a brilliant idea. Now, I should back up a little bit. Shuri, by this point, has met the Panther God, and the Panther God has rejected her and said, you are not worthy to be the Black Panther. That's like being rejected by your great-great-grandfather. That's gotta hurt. Well, I mean, it is what it is. But he doesn't kill her, which is weird. Now, she comes out. She understands she's been rejected, but decides she still has to do what she can and basically goes on a suicide run to draw Morlin towards the evil, the it seems like evil shaman's house. I mean, he is pretty weird. Um, they also have this page of weird art with Shuri where she's drawn much more like Egyptian gold skin tone and more statuesque than I've seen her drawn previously in the series. Yeah, they've drawn her on the skinnier side. And I mean, she, she, super she looks almost like Talia from the Batman comics here, mm-hmm. not like the Shuri of previous issues. Drawn the way I've seen some artists draw Wonder Woman. Yeah. Or or Nubia, uh, uh, who's like an Egyptian Wonder Woman or part black. Uh, that, that's a convoluted history in its own right. Anyway, we get Zuri and Wakabi out to defend the doorway, that, and they're going to slow down Morland so that Shuri can lead him away. And that's when Morlun reaches through Wakabi's chest and rips his heart out. You can't do that to Wakabi. She, he just did, right there. Not cool. And it's no trick. Wakabi is dead. That's not cool. And I think he kills Zuri there, too. Rude. Now, this is a clear symbol. We have these two uh, pillars of T'Challa's Black Panther who are being killed. While Shuri is donning the Black Panther garb, She's been rejected by the Panther God, but because she is spoiled, not because she's not capable, by being rejected and still wanting to live up to her claim and risking her life, she actually is proving herself to the Panther God who's letting her be the Black Panther now. Yeah, because doesn't he normally kill who he rejects? Yep. So he wanted to give her a chance to prove herself. He, she, it. They. They, I mean... They do often refer to the Panther God as feminine, so I guess we should say she. And it has not happened yet, but when we get to the Ta-Nehisi Coates run, we'll start to see it referred to as Bast or Bastet, which, of course, is a cat god from northern Egypt, but Wakanda's in the north of Egypt right now, so why not? For all we know, they're neighbors right now. Look, at some point, Wakanda is going to be next to Arkansas. <laughs> Seriously. I just... Bloody hell, man. Um, that's, that's like... A writer's way of putting his foot down on Wakanda. Right. He decides to put it in Africa. Right. I mean, w- one day it's going to be next to, uh, uh, it's going to be on some weird island in between Britain and France. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's just going to occupy all of the water between Britain and France. <laughs> um, and people will go, I thought you were in Africa. And it's like, hey, man, retcons happen. <laughs> um, and writers drink. So they get Morlin to the hut. Morlin is sent into the shadow world where T'Challa and Storm are fighting. And basically this death entity says, all right, more than fair trade. You two can go back. 
This Moreland dude has tons of energy from everything he's eaten. I think I'll enjoy eating him instead. So Shuri yeah. used her brains. And Shuri embraced this old traditional magic of Wakanda instead of relying entirely on, you know, the gadgets of modern Wakanda. And this idea of the split between the old and new Wakanda, of course, goes uh, back to Don McGregor. He talked about it a lot. And we've seen it as a secondary but present theme here in Reginald Hudlin. And it will definitely come up again with Todd Nahisi Coates, especially in the character of Shuri. And so now we have T'Challa, who's returned and is perhaps even technically regent of Wakanda, but he, the Black Panther is now Shuri. And there are maybe two Black Panthers. They're probably both legitimately Black Panther. And I love this old retro cover they provided uh, of a female Black Panther in World War II. Yeah, I like that. It's just, it's just kind of a fun old piece. Decade variant cover by Mitch uh, Breitweiser. Now we have, at the end of this, this four-person, uh, four-issue miniseries that Reginald Hudlin wrote, Flags of Our Fathers. It's a cover of um, Captain America and T'Challa. Right. Not T'Challa. Sorry, uh, Not T'Chaka. Remember, time has moved forward here. When originally the idea was introduced, long ago in these books, uh, they said, okay, we need an older generation to be World War II, so it's going to be T'Challa's father, T'Chaka. Now, so much time in the real world has passed that that's too long ago for T'Chaka, so they're now making it Azari the Wise, T'Chaka's father. Wise. <laughs> right. Retcon, meet retcon. <laughs> We're retconning the retcons, folks. Wait until we figure out who Azari the Wise's father is. This, look. This is why you just have to embrace mythology in comics. If you worry about continuity, you will go insane. There's no point in it. But this story takes place early in Captain America's career when he, they still don't know how much they can trust him, the U.S. government, what his capabilities are, and he runs into Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos, which includes a black man named Gabe. Now, they're pinned down and having major troubles, and Captain America comes in and kind of saves them. And he's not a symbol of anything yet. They still look at him like, uh, what's this guy doing wearing colorful long johns? This is kind of weird. Which is fair, honestly. But a, a statement is thrown out immediately in the opening pages here. They're on the mess hall on a warship. Captain America comes in. They're asking him about, you know, does he take his mask off, this or that. He's like, no. It's my job to be a symbol, so who I really am doesn't matter. He sits down immediately next to Gabe, which sitting down with a black man would be, you know, a little bit controversial anyway uh, among some people. The Howling Commandos don't care, and it's clear Captain America doesn't care. And when he doesn't have any silverware and Gabe's already finished eating, he just reaches over and says, hey, mind if I use these? Um, and Gabe is a little freaked out. You know, here's this guy he doesn't even know who's willing to reach over and use the same utensils a black man was using. Which, think about World War II. Kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we are talking about a time period where, I mean, we can't get into what all happened with African Americans in World War II, but some pretty awful things in terms of often not recognized for their acts, um, horrible things done to them with the Tuskegee experiments after World War II, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. 
So, and, and unsurprisingly, with Gabe as a n partial narrator here, and we're going into Wakanda in World War II, this story is going to be about race on some level, which all stories involving Black Panther are about race on some level. Sometimes very low, sometimes very high. We're more towards the high end of the spectrum in this one. But there is a lot of just straightforward adventure happening, too. Oh, right. Now, T'Challa, sorry, Azari <laughs> and Captain America run into each other, and Azari beats the crap out of him. I, I think Steve Rogers needs some more practice. Now, of course, it turns out that the Red Skull is here, and he's leading up the operation to invade Wakanda. Captain America and Azari, the wise, are getting along well. I don't know if he has the wise moniker at this rate. That uh, may have come after, later. After, you know, he beat the man senseless. Well, you know, they kind of had to have a little bromance sparring there to get the blood going, you know. And meanwhile, Red Skull says, okay, we're going to send in one more platoon. And the other guy in charge of the operation is like, one platoon? We have six. We send them all in. We just crush them. No, no, send one in. They get there, and we see that machine pop up, the same one that Reginald Hudlin designed for the very beginning of his run on Black Panther, it blows up the tanks and all this stuff happens, and they repel the invaders easily. And of course, this is what Red Skull planned. He wanted to find out what their defenses were like. And that's when we find out the Red Skull has brought in his own little threesome of psychopathic, super-powered people, a kind of Superman stand-in-esque character, a sort of Wonder Woman-esque stand-in character, and they're all incredibly racist. They're torturing some black villagers they found. And the third one being this guy with no arms and sharp teeth who's a cannibal and likes to lunge at and eat people. WTF? Just, you know, for weirdness. Just because we needed a fourth person. Right. So we do get a scene here of T'Chaka and his brother... Uh, helping dig graves for the dead Wakandans when they're young teens. Not T'Chaka, Azari. No, 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 Azari's the dad. The oh, kids are oh. T'Chaka and his brother. Okay. Now, as everything goes on the storyline, we see the, at this time, head of the White Ape Clan actually cooperating with the Nazis. Which, I mean, if you want to add fuel to the fire for why the White Ape Clan isn't trusted in Wakanda, there we go. But Gabe walks around, and he's blown away. He says, heaven, I've never seen anything like this. Stores full of food, happy kids, folks operating machines I've never seen before. No wonder they have to keep it a secret. The world isn't ready for this. And it's all black people. And we talked before about how the opening of the Black Panther movie was very powerful for a lot of people. This is that same theme. We also saw it uh, in Christopher Priest's Black Panther when Queen Divine Justice first encountered a Wakandan city. You know, this idea of a place. We talk these days a lot about uh, not just African Americans, but people of the African diaspora. What happened with the colonization of African states uh, have sent people around the world. And here we're talking about a home, a true home, untouched by invaders or Europeans. It's a powerful image. And in the course of it, of course, the Nazi superpowers show up. They're fought off. That's not terribly interesting, but they are some fun fight scenes. But at the end of it, Gabe uh, pockets a sliver of vibranium 
And he's basically, because he's basically been asked by the U.S. government to betray the Wakandans and steal vibranium for the U.S. war effort. And by the end of things, he's actually offered Wakandan citizenship. He turns it down, but also doesn't give the vibranium to the U.S. So we also have this fun little scene where Captain America's shield is destroyed and Azari loans him his circular shield, which he uses as a thrown weapon. And he says that's where his idea comes from for a circular shield later. Which is a fun little thing. Um, now, this does kind of contradict the Christopher Priest story where Azari gave him the shield. I like both, though. Or T'Chaka gave him the shield back in the Christopher Priest run. Yeah. But it's mythology. It's okay. We can have them both be true. And then at the end, if you pick up this complete edition, there are sort of this history of Black Panther. And it's kind of interesting because they give a complete reading list, including a lot of stuff that I did not go over here because I didn't want to go over every tiny little appearance and every Avengers issue he was in, every Captain America issue and all that. But they go through everything, including the stuff that they've retconned out of existence now, which I find interesting. Oh, I like that yep. And there's some just great art here. Mm-hmm. So that's it. That's where we stand at the end of the Christopher Priest run. Yep. Uh And they did these interesting promotional images where they kind of, you know, teased that there would be a female Black Panther and they put some out. Is Echo the new Black Panther? Is Monica Rambeau the new Black Panther? Is Shuri the new Black Panther? Yes, that one. Is Sue Storm the new Black Panther? Um, and, And they did these for fun. But, oh, are the Dora Milaje the new Black Panthers? <laughs> and we get a bunch of black and white uh, sketch art here, including some by Dennis Cohen. Uh, Dennis Cohen is just one of the great artists. He, he did a lot of the art for Flags of Our Fathers that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the great black comic book artists. Um, and just one of the great artists, period, honestly. So there we go. That is volume three. Uh, of Reginald Hudlin's Black Panther. Now, we have some other things to talk about that we probably should chat about before we jump into Ta-Nehisi Coates because there were some other works in between. I don't know. I, I'm going to have to skim through them and see what we want to talk about and what we don't want to talk about. Because um, I don't think... I mean, here's a question. They don't really build up the mythology. And these include uh, a number of side stories such as the events of the Doom War, uh, Black Panther, Long Live the King, Black Panther, The Man Without Fear, uh, and so on. I mean, do we want to go into those, which are a more complete publication history? Uh, we also didn't talk about Black Panther and the crew, We Are the Streets. I, but it falls back into that other issue of not everything published with Black Panther actually is important to his mythology. I mean, trust me, that whole crossover thing they did with BMW where they promoted BMW for four issues of, the, of a mini Black Panther miniseries comic does nothing to actually improve the mythology of the Black Panther. Other than the fact that he likes to drive BMWs? He just, well, he likes just fast cars and planes and, you know. But what guy with an unlimited budget doesn't? <laughs> Fair. I mean, if I ever left my office, I'd love to, you know, have a... Uh, Aston Martin Vanquisher. Sadly, 
Yeah. Although I'd probably get myself killed driving it at 150 miles an hour and wrap it around a tree trunk. For <laughs> <laughs> that, I'll sit in the car if you can afford it. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm an assistant professor at uh, Miskatonic University. I can't even afford an apartment, which is why I live in my office. <laughs> so that's not happening. I couldn't afford the insurance on the car, much less the car itself. You know what assistant professors get paid? Really, do you? No. Let's just move away from this topic. My therapist says I shouldn't be triggered unnecessarily. Um, you have any questions? I mean, what do you think? Do you want to go into those other side stuff or just skip ahead to Ta Nahisi Coates? I think we should just skip ahead to Ta Nahisi Coates run because if we go over the stuff that isn't just important to the mythology, then we may as well do everything. Yeah, and I really don't much. want to get into that. There, there is other good stuff. I do recommend for people who really love Black Panther, especially Black Panther, the man without fear when he subbed in for Daredevil. I think that's especially fun. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, I feel like the only thing we need to cover is stuff that impacts his mythology and stuff they mention in later runs. And I may talk about uh, Amazing Spider-Man Wakanda Forever. Um, I don't know. But next week, we'll jump into Todd Nahisi Coates, and we're going to wrap it up, because here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the collected volumes of Todd Nahisi Coates, and I'm not going past that. They're still doing individual issues, folks, and I'm not getting into those. Um, maybe I'll do a catch-up episode at some future point when they put out new collected editions, but I don't, the, I don't want to refer people to buying individual issues and things that are hard to get of comics. Because, frankly, I think the way most people read them now is in the trade collections. And I think that's the easiest way to refer to them and make them accessible to people. What do you think? Agreed. Okay. So, I am... I, I'm going to be honest, folks. I'm looking forward to finishing up Black Panther here. Because I'm ready to move on. Uh, and if you have feedback about what you want to hear me do after Black Panther, hit me up on Twitter, Prof Hamby. Um, yeah. gonna be next to fucking Beijing. I swear it. I swear it. You know what happens? I'm gonna tell you what happens. I'm gonna tell you right freaking now what happens. Wakandans woke up one morning and went, we want Chinese food. So they just hit the fucking button and teleport the country. Whole country. It's just sitting next to Beijing. It's a new fucking suburb or something. And then when they fill up on Chinese food, who knows we're next? They have some munchies next. <laughs> they're going to decide they want maple syrup, and they're going to be in freaking Canada. Which, I mean, technically they already gave back that one, you know, island. He says they won't take it back. There you go. <laughs> anyway, um, I have more teaching whiskey to drink, mm -hmm. and I have to fix dinner. And I have papers to avoid. Papers, papers... Oh, those things that they email me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I just put up a rule that forwards them to you. I noticed. Yeah. So uh, feel free to grade those however you like. Um, if you can collect bribes from the students, that's fine with me. I don't give a shit. Um, I'm just here to teach, not to care. And join us in a couple more days when we talk about the history of Malibu comics. Bye. <laughs>